Welcome to Making the Medicine, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And I'm going to start out with a big question, one of those questions that will probably turn off new listeners, and I'm just going to tell you, wait, because we're going to get to practical, interesting stuff really quickly. The big question is this, what changes history? Now, the really curious thing about this question is that it changes over time, uh, depending on kind of the anxieties of a particular age. So in the 19th century, when there was a, a bunch of countries that were trying to knit themselves together through the development of nationalism, one of the big things that history did was it provided a story of a nation. It looked at the events that went on, uh, done by the people who lived in a particular place, and tried to make it into a narrative about the rise of the nation. So German historians would look through German archives to try to describe how people like Frederick the Great were actually participating in this big, long historical process of creating the German nation. For other people in the 19th century, it wasn't the creation of the nation that was the big problem. It was the spread of machines and the new ways of work and exploitation that they uh, created in their wake. And for these historians, influenced, of course, by the Marxist, it wasn't the nation that was important. It was work and technology and oppression and the conflict between classes that was the important thing about history. And so these historians looked at inventors and entrepreneurs and workers and revolutions as the big driver of change in history. And I mean, maybe you can see these two big poles as uh, the important uh, centers of, of history up until the 80s. You have political history that looks at the uh, 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 politicians and great men and generals and warriors who create the nation, and then you have other kinds of history that look at the development of the economic system. But after the 80s, and especially after the 90s, there is a marked change in the anxieties of the people who are writing history. There's a marked change in what we take to be the driver of history. And this comes from a moment which I'm gonna call the end of history. My academic-minded friends just cringed and like looked down at their phones like, Brendan, why are you talking about the end of history? Because it's kind of a uh, denigrated subject. But I think that it makes sense of what's happening in the 80s and 90s. So the end of history is this idea by the scholar Francis Fukuyama that after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990, the big questions had been answered. The big questions of the past were how to organize the uh, politics and how to organize production. And they had found their answer in liberal democracy. Everybody on earth pretty much agreed that uh, some kind of individualistic, democratic, uh, free market economy was the way to go. And so all of these conflicts that have been driving forward culture for so long were kind of petered out. And we can see this in history. Uh, people after the 80s and 90s stopped caring as much about the great men of history. The decline of political history is really marked. I can't tell you who uh, 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 the Walkingham Whigs were, whereas a historian of my caliber and my type 50 years ago would be able to talk to you about the Rockingham Whigs for hours. It also led to a decline of history that focused on class as defined through socioeconomic structures. 
Instead, what arose was a method of history that looked at culture, at the changes of symbols and language that drove forward history. It wasn't simply ideas that drove forward history or great men or technology, but how those ideas and great men and technology and labor were reflected in culture. At best, this gave new life to a bunch of different kind of moribund studies. At worst, it explained that history wasn't something that was connected to daily life, but was rather this kind of airtight world of culture talking to culture talking to culture. But it's not the 90s anymore. And we live in a different world. And so there's two new perspectives that are coming to the study of history that I think are important. The first is environmental history, and I think that you've seen some of that in this podcast. It's the idea that the environment matters for history, and it doesn't just matter for history as some sort of unmoved mover that makes pushes things forward. It's not just that mountain people do this and people on the coast do this. Environmental history tries to take seriously the fact that the environment is an actor in history and is also acted upon, that history is the story of this feedback between people and the world that they live in. Um, you can see this in this podcast through my attention to objects and energy and place and uh, geography. But today we're not going to talk about energy history. We're going to be talking about information history. And in case you don't think that these different lenses of history matter, I think that they matter an incredibly large amount for what politics is today. If you look at folks like Steve Bannon and Michael Flynn, a lot of the people in the militaristic alt-right who are pushing for a global war against Islam, they're influenced by a scholar named Samuel Huntington, whose idea is the clash of civilizations. After the advance of liberal democracy, he argues, countries are no longer aligned on basis of uh, philosophy or even of economic organization, but rather by culture. And this he sees as being an inevitable clash between free Western culture on the one hand and authoritarian religious culture on the other. And if Western culture, our wonderful individualistic freedoms and prosperities want to survive, we have to hit first. This is part of the intellectual tradition that is pushing forward a militaristic stance in the current presidential administration. But let's talk about information. So clearly, it makes sense why scholars today are interested in information, because cheap information is all around us to the extent that it influences our everyday life on a level that I don't think has ever been seen before in history. You are listening to this podcast. It is a free piece of information that I send out to dozens or a hundred people every single day, instantly and free. You are getting the boiled down ideas that I have by reading library books that come to me literally by the dozens. 
you can see how this cheap information is changing the world in which we live by how we view the media. 50 years ago, the media was the New York Times and CBS, pretty much, or your local newspaper as well. Today, we understand the news media environment as this pluralistic fog of different outlets that each have their own benefits and setbacks and each have their own political claims. And, you know, you might read one for the articles and the other you might read to get statistical information. Information is so important that entire economies are built on scraping the minuscule data traces that you and I leave behind as we go out on our days and making something that companies can use from it. So let's think about information in the time period that I study, the 18th and 19th centuries. Well, maybe even let's go back a little bit and just look at how a lot of what we take as the big movements in European history happen as part of a story of information. So the big moment here is the invention and popularization of the printing press in the 16th century. Now, if you think that this is just a story of people getting books and reading books, well, I think that it's a lot more because what happens almost immediately after the popularization of the printing press is the Protestant Reformation, which means that the entire European continent for a hundred years is, is, is in this paroxysm of, of people doubting the things that they once took to be sacred and solid, of people going against the established organizations that make everyday life everyday life and claiming that there's different ways of doing things. And they do this because of the printed word. They do this because they're reading printed Bibles that are giving them different ideas of what Christianity should be. And they're doing this because they're reading, reading printed tracts by Protestants who are telling them of possibilities of organizing their societies and their religions that are different to the ones that they are currently using. But so that being said, let's jump to the 18th and 19th centuries, and I'm just going to tell you some of the improvements in the technology of information that start off there. Probably one of the big ones that I should mention is the newspaper. Uh, after 1695 in Britain, there's an end to official censorship with the end of the Licensing Act, and this, alongside the ubiquity of printing presses, means that in London and then later the uh, provinces, there is a spread of newspapers. These first start off as kind of merchant newspapers that give international uh, uh, commercial people information about what ships are coming in and the price of wheat in Odessa and all those incredibly boring, incredibly important things. But they soon spread to take on topics that we think of as the purview of newspapers, politics, religion, opinion, society, entertainment, and they're incredibly widely read. People go kind of newspaper crazy. But it's not just the newspaper that's important about this. It's the places where people read the newspaper, because the newspaper's read in coffee houses and clubs and at home to groups of people who then debate the ideas inside them. The newspaper, along with the space in which the newspaper is consumed, creates new ways of organizing society, new networks based on the exchange of organization. And I think that this is super important because it models the kind of information first organization that will come in the 19th and then even more the 21st centuries. Like a good example of this is Garraway's Coffee House in London. Uh, now in the 17th 
and 18th centuries, Carraway's was kind of like this perpetual fair of cool stuff. It held book auctions. It had uh, scientific discussions with some of the leading scientists of the age, one of whom, Robert Hooke, held a dissection of, the, of a porpoise in the middle of the room. It had a one-eyed itinerant painters discussing politics with drunken soldiers. It had auctions, and it also became a commercial center where people would go to find out the price of leading commodities. In addition to the newspaper, we've also talked in the past about the rise of the mail. And this is also, of course, incredibly important to generating a nationwide market and then afterwards a uh, international market. Um, and the creation of the post uh, is knitting the country together by spreading uh, these things that we've talked about before, by spreading newspapers, by spreading clubs, by spreading societies, by spreading lots of books, by giving people an idea of how to organize their social life around this new kind of consumption of information. And maybe we should talk about books too, because there is also an explosion of book publishing. And when you look through the list of books that are published in the 18th century, uh, you're kind of boggled by the massive variety of different topics that they take on. You can check out the English short title catalog online if you want to just look through the different kind of books. And they range from stuff like scientific treatises on fleas, to religious discussions, to people printing sermons, to dirty poems, to instructions on bell ringing, to uh, uh, help with mechanical stuff. It's pretty much every Thing that you could think of is being printed and read over the 18th century. Alongside this, there's also a development of infrastructure that allows all kinds of information to be exchanged more cheaply. These are the developments of the road systems and the canal systems and also of the bulk trade movement that we'll hit in later episodes. So let's move on to the 19th century because this has taken a lot longer than I think it was. Um, and we've talked a lot about the big moments here, so I don't need to go into those a lot. The big moments to remind you are the developments in technology that collapse space and time. The railroad, the telegraph, along with new forms of artificial lighting that chase away the darkness, new more individualistic organizations of urban space. But let's talk about how uh, uh, technology of information changes things in one particular site, the business. So over the 19th century, businesses got bigger and bigger and they had to deal with increasingly complicated things. Let's, you know, for instance, take the railroads. The railroads were huge concerns that employed lots and lots of people over massive amounts of space. And the railroad companies needed to make sure that everybody was in some way coordinated. The costs of failure, of course, were high. You did not want two different trains to be on the same track because then they'd hit each other and everybody would die. And that is not good publicity and nor is it good business. So how did businesses communicate with it themselves? How did they uh, create information flows about themselves that helped the managers and workers and owners do the things that they needed to do? Well, back in the day, they would just send letters. Um, they'd send letters to other businesses, and rarely they would send letters to people within the business when they couldn't talk to them face to face. Now, sending a letter for a business is a lot more complicated than you think it is. First, the letter that you sent out needs to be copied so that you have a record of what your organization is saying. Um, 
If you're a small organization, this can just be done by a clerk who will copy it out by hand. But of course, if you're sending out a lot of, of letters, you want that to be automated. And there were forms of uh, uh, automated copying in the 19th century. Uh, the big one was the, the press book, the press copy. And in this, you'd write your letter in a special ink, and then you'd put it in a special book, which would then be pressed by a hand press, which took a lot of effort. And this hand press and special ink would transfer the letter onto a sheet of tissue paper, which then you would have a copy of. Um, of course, this advanced as you go through the age. First, you get uh, developments of the carbon copy. Then, uh, at the end of the 19th century, you get the photocopier. But then you also have to deal with getting a letter as well, because you read the letter, but you need to keep a hold onto it for future reference, and you might need to pass it on to your boss, or give it to some underling, or share it with a fellow manager. So how do you file it? Well, here the 19th century had a brilliant invention, which you've probably seen, the pigeonhole desk. It's one of these big, massive desks that you see with a ton of little drawers that have uh, spaces for you to write stuff on it, and they're really kind of complicated and cool, and they have dozens upon dozens of spaces for you to pigeonhole your letters away. And so what you do when you've got a letter is you'd read it, and you'd fold it over and write who it was from on the, the bottom side and maybe abstract it, give a little bit of summary of what it is, and then you'd slide it into a pigeonhole. Of course, this worked, but as you increased the amount of letters that people sent, it stopped working as well, because to fetch one, you'd have to go th rummage through each pigeonhole, open up each individual letter, and refold it to find the, f the letter that you were looking for. Um, but this continued on until the, the late 18th century, when you get this majestic kind of pigeonhole desk called the Wooten desk, which looks like, I mean, I want a Wooten desk. If any incredibly rich people are out there listening and want to buy me an antique, buy me a Wooten desk and I will uh, go to your house and talk to you about whatever you want uh, for like an hour or two, I promise, even if it's during my orals. Um, but these forms of filing systems, the pigeonhole desk and the Wooten desk, were supplanted by one of the most important and most boring inventions you will ever hear of, the flat file. So the flat file is very familiar to you from going through your parents' stuff in the 80s. It's a file that allows you to put papers in vertically without folding them up. Now, why is this useful? Well, it allows you to quickly go through all of the papers in a file without folding and unfolding them over and over again, which makes the ease of looking through correspondence much easier. The flat file was further improved by the creation of the filing cabinet that allowed you then to sort different flat files by different subjects. Another big development is the typewriter, which allowed for the more rapid development of written communication. Uh, a person writing with a steel pen can write maybe, I don't know, 30 words uh, uh, per minute. And uh, to do this, of course, a clerk had to be specially trained. A lot of middle-class people trying to get into business would explicitly talk about how awesome their handwriting was. And if you think that this is trivial, try reading people's handwriting in the 19th century. It was sometimes very, very hard. So the importance of a good hand was paramount. But not so with the typewriter. Uh, 
In the 1880s, the typewriter starts to catch on in American businesses, and it spreads like wildfire. People writing on a typewriter can often type as fast as 120 minutes. And you can see how excited people are on this, because as the typewriter catches on, not only do you get typing courses, which increasingly are taken by women, but you also get typing competitions, where people get together and try to type out things as fast as possible. Um, and within the firm, there's lots of ways that people are uh, 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 generating data that helps them see what the company is actually doing. Um, one example of this is the uh, pre-made form, the pre-made report. Instead of going off and telling your manager every day what you were doing or writing them a long letter where you'd ask about how his kids were doing, Increasingly in the 19th century, you would simply fill out a pre-made report where you ticked boxes and filled in numerical data. And this allowed managers to tabulate what people were doing all throughout the organization and later on present them in things that we would find very familiar today in business intelligence. Graphs, charts, tables, vast visual abstractions of data that kind of uh, make legible the vast and often confusing activities of the business itself. Think of this as part of the rise of the executive summary, the rise of the condensed information about a complicated business that allows managers and other decision makers to act on firms that they don't maybe entirely understand. There's also the development of the memo and the circular, which you can think of as kind of uh, hitting reply all on an email, except you need to constantly be printing them and posting them up around the business itself so that people can read them. So what's the effects of this? What's the big, uh, big deal about the advance of these communicative technologies? Obviously, you know, the 19th century was not an information age the same way that the 21st century is, even though some people call the telegraph system the Victorian Internet. Well, I've been thinking a lot about how the everyday interactions uh, between people and material objects can explain a lot of the stuff that historians usually talk about as cultural and social. And this is a good example of what I'm talking about. So how do we know about the society we live in? How do we know about the people who are fellow members of our nations, our business communities, our schools, our families? Well, we learn about them from these technologies of information that I've just been talking about. We read newspapers to learn about politics, the arts, our cities. We look at statistics to understand the state of the world in which we live in. And furthermore, we also understand that these technologies of information are not, you know, simple mirrors into the outside world. They have politics behind them. In the 18th and 19th centuries, newspapers were understood as claimants in political struggles, as people who were advocating a particular view, trying to prove particular points. The generation of statistics was always combined with people who were trying to do something. Very few people until the 19th century just gathered statistics for fun. Now the grim postmodernists take this argument as meaning that all facts are compromised, that this 
idea of a modern world of facts in which we can, you know, perceive our societies as something as outside of us is completely bunk. And instead, we should look only at, you know, imperfect local knowledge or knowledge that's always influenced by politics. But I take a different perspective from this, a different conclusion. I think that it's more of an accomplishment that through the interested and artificial processes of trying to generate knowledge about the social world, we do get somewhere towards explaining a reality that's outside of us. Uh, the generation of statistics can only be shoehorned into a political narrative for so long. Even though we agree that statistics like the unemployment rate or GDP are politically motivated, they also reveal patterns that politics itself cannot influence. Uh, the unemployment rate does reveal that there are some people who are being left out of the modern economy. And the creation of a world of statistics, of a world of, of public information that is debated, opens up a further realm where we can debate the statistics themselves. We can debate about what kinds of metrics we're using to make our society our society. But what's important about this for me it's, is that it is those tools that allow us to see society. I don't have a view of society in my head that is independent of reading the newspaper on my computer and getting a sense of the different kinds of statistics that are being produced and of seeing a map of America in my, in my elementary school. This, this society that I think I live in is made through uh, objects of information. My second big point is that the ubiquity of information that is uh, uh, rising in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries helps create networks that make up our lives. Big example of this for us today is Facebook. Keeping track with people on Facebook is incredibly cheap. People often critique this. They say that Facebook is passive friendship, that you don't actually need to put any effort in, that the people who you read on Facebook are vast strangers whose posts you just kind of absentmindedly like and share. But I think that the cheapness of friendship on Facebook is actually an incredibly powerful thing because it expands our circles of friends much larger than they were before. You don't need to poo-poo this. Anytime you need to find a job and post a question on Facebook, you are accessing the vast weak ties of your social network vaster than any other previous generation could have uh, 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 hold of. Uh, I find this incredibly useful whenever I go to a new city and I ask for somebody uh, somebody's couch. And I usually find a person who I have seen last five or 10 years ago who will offer me a place to stay. It is pretty amazing. But the cheapness of this information also allows us to make larger and larger organizations. It becomes more manageable for organizations to expand and take advantage of the scale and the scope of uh, uh, large companies. It's part of monopoly capitalism that information is cheap. You do not get companies like GE and Facebook where information is expensive. So if you think that there's a problem in the rise of the organized world, if you think that one of the tragedies of the modern world is that we spend most of our lives acting as the agents of and interacting with large organizations, then you have to blame the cheapness and ubiquity of information as well. And as we're thinking about this, we also have to remember that these networks of information themselves have a history. 
that they are not simply clear windows out into the world of society, that they are influenced by people and they influence people. They create only imperfect views of the world. Thanks very much for joining us today on Making of Historian. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I have to thank, as always, Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us with your friends. It's super important, and it actually helps us get new listeners, uh, which uh, is good for my ego, I guess. If you like my ego, share us on Facebook. Check out the website at historian.live, and I will uh, speak with you tomorrow when I think we're going to be talking about the environment.